0: We are continuing in our series in the book of Acts, Faithful Witnesses, and you were handed a bulletin when you came in, and in that bulletin on the left side, you have a portion of the scripture that we're going to be going through, but we're actually going to be going through chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. So if you have a Bible with you, that would probably be more beneficial, or if you have it on your phone, you can pull that up at this point. And on the left side of your bulletin, the right side of your bulletin, is just a simple outline that we're going to follow, and I'm actually changing the main bulletin. So what's written here is actually not where I'm heading this morning because I called an audible on Friday as I was studying the text. And so the main point of our text this morning is to bear fruit missionally, we must be a community birthed out of the spirit, birthed out of spirit-filled faithfulness and unity. To bear fruit missionally, we must be a community birthed out of spirit-filled faithfulness and unity. And so really quick, just a a quick recap of where we've been thus far. We looked at the ascension of Jesus, that strange story where Jesus floats up into heaven, it seems. That's what's going on at that particular moment. He's not in space. He's not hanging out at Mars. He is in the heavenly places with the Father seated at the right hand. We also saw how the disciples were confused about what the kingdom was and specifically its purpose. We saw how God providentially worked through the betrayal of Judas and how Peter saw the need to reconstitute the 12, which was in essence a reconstitution of Israel as the 12 are representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now this morning, we're going to look at what has been described as the birth of the New Testament church. And while that's true, there is a ton more going on here. There's a lot of things I'm not going to cover as we work through 41 verses this morning, but I am going to focus specifically on what the Spirit did to this community and what it enabled it to accomplish as the people of God. But before we get there, I want to tell you guys a little story about my uh, last two weeks. And so a couple weeks ago, right, we had our first big snowstorm. And that was fun, right? Everyone loves snow, and the kids love to play in the snow. But I have a long driveway. Very long driveway, and currently we live on a main road. So, so if you know anything about how plows work, they tend to just push everything up to where your driveway is. The uh, what, the apron is that what's called the apron of the driveway, right? That's pretty good. I know that. Um, and so and so I'm I'm shoveling, and and then I'm like, oh no, wait! I have a snowblower because uh, I got a snowblower last year. Someone gave it to me, which was great. And so I start up the snowblower, and I'm going, I'm going. And about like two or three minutes in, the engine's going, but there's nothing happening. There's no snow being blown. And so I'm like, okay, what's going on? And, and, and if you know me at all, when, when things go wrong, I don't tend to respond great. i get like, ah, like, oh, this is the worst day ever. This is the end of the world. And it's not the end of the world because the only thing that's the end of the world is the end of the world. But I noticed that the auger wasn't spinning. And I learned what that was this week too. An auger wasn't spinning. And so I ordered a part. I had to get a belt because I took it apart and noticed that the belt broke. And so I'm in my uh, garage this other day when the snow came down. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to fix the snowblower, go on YouTube, the whole thing and take it apart, put the belt in and it starts going. I'm like, okay, I did it. This is great. And about one to two minutes in, I'm snow blowing. And all of a sudden there's just smoke coming out of the engine. And, and, and apparently I did not install the auger, auger belt correctly. And so basically what we have is a user error. There was nothing wrong with the snowblower. There was nothing wrong with the belt. There was nothing wrong with anything, mechanically speaking. There was something wrong with the guy who was trying to perform the mechanics, a user error. I bring that all up because as we look at our passage this morning, we're presented with a situation where the manufacturer or the expert had to step in to set everything right. Because, see, there were a bunch of failed mechanics working throughout the centuries and millennia of Old Testament Israel. A bunch of bad mechanics that weren't getting it right until there was this point where the manufacturer himself steps in. And in setting everything right, the people of God are now finally in a position to live out their mission to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so let's take a look at our text. The first point, are they drunk? Are they drunk? Cheryl brought up an interesting thing this morning, and she made me laugh. She's like, she's like yeah, she, he, Peter brings up, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Of course we're not drunk, but ask me later, and we'll see what happens. And, I, and we laughed. But anyway, neither here nor there. Um, verses 1 through 13 it starts off. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and said, they're filled with new wine. So a couple of observations. First thing. The events that are taking place in this narrative, in this text, are taking place during Pentecost, or what has been described as the Feast of Weeks. Another observation, there were Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. They were all in Jerusalem for the feast. And another thing that popped out was this list of seemingly random nations. So first thing, what is Pentecost? Well, Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover, otherwise known as the Feast of Weeks. It was an agricultural festival, a day when farmers brought the first sheaf of wheat from the crop and offered it to God, partly as a sign of gratitude and partly as a prayer that all the rest of the crop would be safely gathered in. But more importantly, it was another reminder of Israel's redemption story, the exodus where Yahweh rescued his people from the grips of Pharaoh. Now, in the words of New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, 50 days after Passover, Israel came to Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. Pentecost, the 50th day, isn't just about the first fruits, the sheaf, which says the harvest has begun. It's about God giving to his redeemed people the way of life by which they must now carry out his purposes and so too is that the case for the new covenant people of God that Jesus the new Moses he ascended the hill of Mount Zion just last chapter and he came back down not with tablets of stone but with the spirit of God to engrave his law upon the hearts of his people And so what we have going on here is this this sort of new giving of the law, but but not in like the, the Sermon on the Mount way and certainly not in the Mount Sinai way, but the Spirit of God is now implanting the law of God upon the hearts of his people. This is a beautiful thing. Because not only is the Spirit of God implanting the law upon our hearts, but he is giving us the ability now to walk in that law, to honor God and keep in step with him. Something that Old Testament Israel didn't necessarily have access to it, at least not in in the way we have access to it today. See, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament would fall on certain groups of people or individuals when certain things had 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 to take place, had to occur. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant promises something which we are going to see in just a few minutes, that the Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh. And so that's what Pentecost is in a nutshell. But another thing that popped out, why are all these people here? What are they doing here? F.F. Bruce, a New Testament commentator, he says this. From the far-flung lands where the Jews of the dispersion lived, great numbers had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. For only at the Jerusalem temple could they attend the special sacrificial services prescribed for that holy convocation. And so they were there for a feast. They were there to pay to to give sacrifices unto their God. They were there in Jerusalem to go to the temple. And they came from all over. And Victoria, if you could put that map up for me. And as Victoria is getting that up, there's a map that's going to pop up there it is with this random group of nations, which as we start to look at this random group of nations, we notice that no, 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 this doesn't seem so random. In fact, as we look at this random group of nations, we notice that they are coming from the north. They are coming from the west. They are coming from the east. They are coming from the south. What we're looking at is what was spoken of over and over throughout the Old Testament. I'd like to read you a couple of verses from the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 20, it says this. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land, Jerusalem. There I will accept them, and there I will acquire your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. Another passage in Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. But it gets better. Because if you notice the map, as I said just a few minutes ago, these Jews and devout men came from the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And it says in Isaiah chapter 43, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then in Isaiah 49, it says this, verse 12, Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Cyrene. And so what's the point? What's taking place at Pentecost, as we see the Spirit fall upon the people as they're gathered in Jerusalem from the four corners of the earth, is the reconstitution of Israel. And not only is this the reconstitution of Israel, but it is the reversal of what occurred at the Tower of Babel back in Genesis chapter 11 and the rebirth of the people of Abraham, which should remind us of the initial establishment of God's people in Genesis chapter 12. In other words, God is reestablishing his people so that they might fulfill the promise made to Abraham to move outward from Jerusalem to bless all the nations to bless all the nations see for 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 a millennia Israel wasn't getting it right they kept on dropping the ball I mean honestly from jump if you read the story of Abraham like from out the gate he's dropping the ball right he's already not getting it right I mean he's he's giving his wife and pretending and telling people oh no that's my sister no big deal like, wives, if your husband just kind of said, like, hey, no, it's no big deal. That's, it's my sister. You can, you can have her. Whoa. Well, I thought, I thought we were married. What's going on? Right? And so from jump, Abraham's already fumbling the ball. And we see that over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Israel's fumbling the ball, running after other gods, obsessed with their own nationalistic identity, forgetting that they are God's covenant people meant to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And and, and rather than doing that, they decided, yeah, we're going to just try and bless us. Now, there were seasons where good things were happening, but primarily, they didn't really get it right. They didn't really get it right. And so the text continues in verses 14 and following, and and that's what we read earlier. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifting up his voice, he addressed them: men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all flesh. And so the onlookers, those gathered in Jerusalem from the four corners of the earth, who were not yet filled with the Spirit, believed that what they were looking at was a group of people who were drunk. And and a thing, a question kind of occurred to me as I was working through, have I ever made myself to look drunk as a result of me following Jesus? And, And not drunk and falling all over the place, but have I ever been looked at and been like, John, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you that you're making these decisions? And and I want to pose that question to you. Has anyone ever questioned your decision-making because you were seeking to follow God's calling upon your life? You were seeking to keep in step with the Spirit, whether it was how you spend your money, how you use your time, how you raise your children, how you live your life as a kid in school. Has anyone ever looked at you and said, like, what's wrong with you? And the only answer you can give is, I'm following Jesus. And that's something we do need to wrestle with as a people. We need to wrestle with that individually. We need to wrestle with that as a church. Are we marked by the Spirit or are we marked by the surrounding world? Are we marked by the Spirit or are we marked by the surrounding world? So Peter goes on. They're not drunk, he says. What's happening is the very thing that was promised throughout the Old Testament. And he cites this prophecy from the book of Joel. And he actually tweaks it a little bit. Because the first verse, verse 17, he says, in the last days. And that's not what it says in Joel 2. It says, and after this, or something of that nature. But Peter tweaks it to let people know, we are in the last days. What was spoken of by the prophet Joel is happening now. And so no, they are not drunk, but rather the fulfillment of a promise of the inaugurated kingdom of God is happening right before your eyes. And you guys are missing it. You guys are missing it. You're all here for the Feast of Weeks to offer your sacrifices to Yahweh and you don't see that he's right in front of your face. He's right here, and notice who gets the Spirit, right? All flesh get the Spirit. Sons and daughters are prophesying. Young men are seeing visions. Old men are dreaming dreams. Male and female servants are prophesying. This morning, we're not going to get into the specificities of the gifts of the Spirit and the debate about whether they continue or have ceased. That's not the point of this particular text, and that is a conversation that we can have and we should be having, but that's not where we're going this morning. Where we're going this morning is we're looking at this redemption of Israel so that the world might see what God is like. Because the world was looking at Israel for so long, and they were getting a poor view of God. But now true Israel, who's seated in the heavenly places, Jesus himself, who now pours out his spirit upon Israel, they're finally going to be able to catch a glimpse of what God is like. They're finally going to be able to catch a glimpse of what God is like. I thought this was interesting, and it popped up as I was working through the text. It reminds me of a conversation between Moses and Joshua back in Numbers chapter 11, where Joshua was concerned that there were people prophesying in the camp. And Moses responds, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? And this is exactly what is happening at Pentecost. And better, this is the truth of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. One other scholar, Alan Thompson, says it like this, in contrast to the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit empowered only certain people and prophets to mediate God's word, now all of God's people are able to speak for God. Now that the promise Christ has come and God's saving purposes have been revealed in Christ, all of God's people are enabled by a spirit to announce the fulfillment of God's saving plan and promises when they proclaim Christ. We are all prophets. We are all God's mouthpiece to speak forth the good news in a bad news world. We get to tell people about the kingdom of God. And we do so through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on here. See, God is is bringing all of his promises to completion in the person of Christ and then now his people. And this promise is going to extend to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're going to see that unfold through the book of Acts. We're going to see how this snowball just gets bigger and bigger and bigger till we stand here... 2021, in Tom's River, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, and the gospel's here. The gospel's here. By God's grace and through the power of his spirit. Oh, that's good news. That's good news. The nations now have access to the kingdom through the spirit and through Christ. The nations have access to the kingdom. And the beautiful thing where this whole project of Israel's constitution, um, reconstitution is heading is that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's just pushing towards that. And that's what the entire Old Testament was pushing toward. And finally now, in the person and work of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as it fills the people of God, the new covenant people of God, now that message of salvation, that message of redemption extends everywhere. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everywhere. We just need to repent and believe, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But what's the point? Jesus, the faithful Israelite, the righteous king, has brought together his people through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the good news of the kingdom might extend to the uttermost parts of the earth, a vocation given to the nation of Israel who utterly failed but was redeemed by God himself, reestablished, and unleashed into the world to be a blessing to the nations. Oh, that's good news. Praise God, because I'm not Jewish, I'm Italian, and I get to to be with the Lord. I get to be with the Lord. And that's not downing Italians, but I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, we're a fun people, but we we have some issues. The text goes on, verses 22 through 41. Brothers, nope, wrong part. Men of Israel, Hear these words. Again, he's talking to Israel. Catch these little phrases. Be a close reader of the text. Close reading, if you're in the education world, means you read slow. You make those observations. I don't know if you've been noticing. I've been pointing out observations these past few weeks. Because that's how we read the Bible. We need to read it. Then we need to make observations. And then we need to see connections. And hopefully we're catching that as we go through the text. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. See, see Peter's not playing around. Peter's not playing around because here's the deal. If we're going to repent of something, we need to know what it is we're repenting of. We need to understand what the sin is. If, if you've ever, you know, had a situation in, in a relationship, in a marriage or whatever, where, where maybe you walk into the house and, and your spouse is mad at you. And they're just mad at you. And you're trying to talk to them, like, hey, what's going on? And, and they don't, they don't, they're just mad. And they don't tell you why they're mad. And maybe they might even expect you to know why they're mad. But you don't know. And if you don't know, you can't fix it. You can't repent of it. And maybe you've experienced that, I'm not sure, but that's kind of what's going on here. Peter's basically telling them, like, yeah, you messed up. Let me explain how you messed up because you need to know because you need to repent. He says, this Jesus, verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here we see the sovereignty of God in place. We see the providence of God, which we talked about last week. But then here it shifts. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Another way of saying lawless men, Gentiles. You got Gentiles to do your dirty work. The people of God, Israelites. You tapped foreigners to do your dirty work in killing your king. That's a low blow, right? Peter's not an idiot. He knows what he's talking about. Peter knows how to to get into their heads to make them see what's going on. The text goes on. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue re- rejoiced and, and my flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And I love what Peter does here. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, He's dead. David's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus. He's dead and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ or another way of putting it, the king. That he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up And another word for Christ, king, this Jesus whom you crucified. Israel killed their own king. But the grace of God, as he displays throughout the entirety of scripture, extends his arm and says, come back to me. Come back to me. I know you ran after other gods throughout your history. I know you've turned your back on me. I know you've killed the prophets and so many before me. And now I know you actually killed my son, your king, the one who sits on David's throne. You killed him. Come back to me. Come back to me. Man, if that's not grace, I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is the beauty of the good news of Jesus, that we turn our backs on God and he calls us back. Come back to me. Come back to me. The text continues, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, Peter... They said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I think it's interesting that they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus the King for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children. There's a covenantal nature And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. God's people, Jews and devout men from every nation under heaven. Those from the dispersion, from the four corners of the earth, all the house of Israel, as we see in the book of Ezekiel, have come back into the land. They have bent their knee to their king, and they have received forgiveness. They have received forgiveness. And so as we draw to a close this morning, what we're witnessing is the reversal of what I called at the beginning of our time this morning a user error. It's a user error. See, there was nothing wrong with the law, as Jesus pointed out multiple times throughout the Gospels. There's nothing wrong with the law. There was something wrong with the people. There was something wrong with the kings who sat on the throne over the land. They did not live up to Deuteronomy 17, which is what a king should look like, which is what a leader or a ruler should look like. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was given a vocation or a job to be a blessing to all the nations. But what we saw instead of blessing the nations, they became like the nations. They allowed the world to seep into their midst, their kingdom was divided. They grew more and more nationalistic as the years went on. They worshipped foreign gods and idols. And as a result, they were unable to fulfill their vocation, but instead were exiled and removed from the land, overcome by the world. Redeemer Fellowship, have we not witnessed similar scenarios throughout church history? And in this historic moment where we all stand, are we not experiencing this exact scenario both within our own church and, and out there also within the greater body of Christ? See, if we are to bear missional fruit, if this congregation of people are to be an effective witness here in Tom's River and on the Jersey Shore, then we must be a people marked by holiness, by love, humility, unity, and peace. And the only way we become that sort of people, the people who Pete is going to preach about next week, is if we keep in step with the Spirit. If we proclaim boldly the kingdom of God, if we devote ourselves to the good news of King Jesus, to one another, and to prayer. We have allowed too much of what is going on out there to dictate how we live our lives Here and I'm preaching directly to myself right now because because I struggle with this as well. I struggle with fears of, of, of am I going to have enough money to support my family? Am I going to have enough time? Are we going to be able to build back this church from what it once was? Are we going to be able to do these things? I struggle, and, and I think, are there, are there ways, are there, are there methods that we can adopt? And sure, there are, but, but the greatest method that we can adopt is, is, is coming before the throne of Almighty God, humbling ourselves, putting all of ourselves into this mission that Jesus has called us to be a part of. There are no slick tricks that are going to move the needle forward. Sure, we can, we can do some things to, to make it look nice on the outside, but ultimately, if, if we use worldly means to accomplish a heavenly mission, the emperor will inevitably have no clothes, and it will eventually be seen. So we need to, we need to go to the Lord We need to learn from Old Testament Israel and how they fumbled the ball as they tried to make their way down the field and never got to the touchdown, the end zone. I'm not a big sports guy. We need to learn from them. And and more importantly, because we don't just have to learn and, and kind of fix it in our own heads. We get the Spirit of God. See, here here we are. We're we're the temple of Almighty God. We're that that new new heavens and new earth temple, the, the beginning of new creation right here as the Spirit indwells his people. And finally on the throne is a king, a righteous one, a righteous king that we get to serve underneath. And like I said... We have allowed too much of what is going on out there to dictate how we live here. But the beauty of God's kingdom is that there's grace for those of us who repent. There's grace. And so as we come to the table this morning, I want us to come considering where we have allowed the ways of this world to influence how we follow Jesus, how we do church how we live our lives in community. We're in the midst of what the Christian tradition has called Lent, a time to prepare ourselves for the Easter season through fasting and prayer. And and my encouragement to you, we're not doing anything big as a church this year, but what I want to encourage us during this season, that we would draw nearer to Jesus, not just individually, but as a body, that we would use that time to prayer. I would encourage you, those of you who have maybe never fasted before, give it a shot. Maybe fast for a single meal. Start small. If if you've never fasted before, you shouldn't fast for an entire day or two days or three days. It's it's not an easy thing to do, especially if you go past the 24-hour mark. But I'd encourage you, skip a meal. Use that time to seek the Lord. Pray for your family. Pray for your church. Pray for the mission of God. Pray for those who do not know the Lord in your midst. Those of you who have fasted for more than a single meal, take a day, maybe a day a week. Peach challenged me to do one day a week during Lent. I haven't yet done it yet, but we'll talk about it. Redeemer Fellowship, we have such an opportunity as believers, as followers of Jesus, as this new covenant people of God filled with the Spirit to be the means by which the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. That's what we get to do. So as the elements are being passed out, I, I want to, again, give us a minute to just just stand silently, sit silently before the Lord for about a minute or so as we just consider the things that we've heard this morning. So, so take your time. We'll spend about a minute in silence and then we will participate in the Lord's Supper together.